Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. We're going to study today uh, canonicity. How many people know what canonicity is? All right, one person, two people. Okay. It's basically how, how we got our Bible, how we got the scriptures, what, why is it in the, the book we have it in, what was the process for doing that. Uh, and normally it's not a very popular subject. Let me ask a, a couple questions here. Let's say you're on a, a desert island. You know you're going to be there for five years, and you have a, a choice between two books. One's going to be your Bible, and the other one, you make a choice between these different categories. Um, any book by John Piper, uh, any book by Mark Dever, uh, any book by Spurgeon, or Michael Kruger's book, uh, Revisiting the Canon, The Origin and Authority of the New Testament. Which book are you going to pick? How many would pick a Piper book? Okay. How many would pick a Dever book? How many would pick a Spurgeon book? How many would pick another book? Okay, well, I would pick Kruger's book because I, I love canonicity. And I, I hope not to, uh, I'm probably not going to convince you to like it as much as I do, but at least enough to where you won't laugh if I ask this question again. That you'll see how, how important it is and how uh, delightful it is to study how uh, we got our canon, the men that went into the, the formation of it and how we collected it. Um, again, how we got the books of our Bible. Uh, you've been hearing uh, from Justin that the Bible is authoritative. You've heard probably that it's inerrant. Uh, you may have heard about the perspicuity of the scripture, how, how it's clear and understandable. Uh, you've probably heard of its sufficiency. Um, but what good is all that if we can't nail down exactly what the Bible is? If there's nothing we can pin those things to and say this is the Bible that possesses all these qualities, then really what you heard the last couple of weeks is, is meaningless because it doesn't, it's nothing, basically. Um, now, the, the difficulty in teaching the canon, uh, it's, it's a lot like teaching the preservation of Scripture, and that is, it is really a, a historical study. When you studied um, the sufficiency or persecuity of Scripture, the authoritativeness, the inerrancy of it, you went to the Bible and, and picked verses that, that taught that about the Scripture. But when we look at canonicity, it's a rather large, in fact, it's a massive study. Uh, there are books written. Uh, in fact, Kruger's book is basically the, a 600-page book on just the first three centuries of the scripture, of, of history, how it was formed. Um, and what sort of, how this teaching that I'm doing tonight developed was, I think it was Justin's last sabbatical, uh, I believe July 2018. Uh, the elders were asked to do a, a series in Justin's absence on the document of the Bible. And I wasn't an elder back then, but they included me in, in these teachings. And uh, one of them was canonicity. And so I, I figured, well, I'll go ahead and do that since it's the most difficult one, and I usually like those kind of challenges, and also it means I can buy some books, kind of weasel some books out of Geneva. Now I just go to Scott, and he writes me a, a blind check for whatever I need, pretty much. That doesn't happen. But Anyway, so I thought I'll, I'll do it on candidacy. It'll be an intellectual challenge, not just to study, but to teach in a way that people are, are helping and encourage, and then I can get a few books out of it as well from Geneva. And uh, so I started thinking about it, and I realized, man, this is a massive topic. There's no way I'm going to get this into one single lesson. 
And so normally when I uh, preach or, or study for a sermon or, or Sunday schools, I don't usually listen to other sermons. I usually, uh, I'll take the, the text I'm dealing with or the topic, and uh, if, if it's a text out, I'll sort of translate it from the Greek or from the Hebrew. Uh, I'll sort of uh, diagram the sentence, and you pretty much have a, a sermon right there. Then I just go into theology books and hang some theology and, and practical application and illustrations on it. And then maybe if I have time, I'll listen to somebody else's sermons. But normally it, it's the last thing I do if I ever do. And with this, I thought, well, let me go on sermon audio and, and look for some people that have done this before. And I went out there and I, I found a seven part series that I did like 11 years before that, that I completely forgot about. It was at the church I used to, the pastor at. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll go ahead and listen to this, see what I said. <laughs> I couldn't remember doing it, let alone what I actually said. So I listened to it and I thought, oh, it's even worse now. It just, the amount of material that I've got to put into one sermon, it's just, there's no way I'm gonna be able to do it. So as I thought about it and prayed about it, what I did was I divided the time of the formation of the canon into three periods, just kind of in my head. Uh, first is the generation right after the apostles called the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, the second one was the men whose lives overlapped those men. So you had apostles, you had men who knew the apostles and their ministry went 50, 60 years beyond the apostles' death. Then you had another generation of men who were trained by these men who were trained by the apostles. Uh, and then after that, you had three or four generations of men that came about until the formation of the canon in about 360, AD. Some would say a little bit before that. So there's these three... Uh, periods. One is just a generation, another one's a second generation, and the third is maybe two or three generations until uh, they can confidently say this is our Bible. And so what I want to do is look at those first two generations because what they do is they pretty much lay the foundation for what that other generation did in giving us the Bible that we have. And now they did probably 90% of the work in, in establishing what books were to be in the Bible. But there was maybe four or five that they were debating at the time. And it took a, a good 150 years to get those four or five solidified into a, an established canon. So what we're gonna do is basically the same thing. Look at those first two generations, the Apostolic Fathers, um, and then the men who, I don't know if it's got a, a name, but just the, the group of men who came after those, who ministered with those. And, and again, they overlapped, they knew each other. So these men were, were uh, co-workers together in the work of the Lord. Again, this is an open lesson, so if you have questions or comments, I'll try to have time afterwards to uh, have questions, but feel free to interrupt or ask any questions as we go on. Uh, first thing is the characteristics of the scripture. When, when these men looked at the Bible, looked at a book and considered it part of the canon or not part of the canon, uh, there are certain characteristics that they, they look for in that book. Um, the first was they look for a, a divine quality or authority in the book um, when they considered it, to, whether it was inspired or not. Um, we notice uh, this basically in the, the life of the Lord, uh, when people listen to him speak. Uh, how did they respond to his teaching? They, they recognized there was an authority there. So the people, just the common people, were amazed at what Christ taught, right? Uh, they, they, they were stunned at how, what, not just how well he taught, they didn't mention anything about his eloquence. It, it was his power and his authority. He said he, he taught not like the scribes. Uh, the scribes just basically uh, pontificated about useless subjects or they rehashed what the rabbis had said before them. But Christ taught as one, they said, having authority. 
Now, how did they know that? From the way that he spoke. And in establishing the canon, what the men who helped do that, what they looked for was that same quality and that same authority in the books that they were considering. And if they saw that there, then that was a good category for the scripture. Um, It was a a, a spirit-recognized authority that the church that had the spirit in it, that was sensitive to the spirit, would recognize. Uh, Anybody here, Philip Schaaf here, S-C-H-A-F-F. He was a a historian who lived in the mid-1900s, 1800s. And uh, he wrote a a massive uh, history of the Christian church. It's like eight volumes, and they're about this thick. And uh, when I became a Christian, two of the first books that I bought was uh, Schaefer's Systematic Theology and Philip Schaefer's History of the Christian Church. And I just devoured it. I I loved it, just reading that that deep uh, history. And his first volume is titled The Apostolic Fathers, where he's dealing with this generation right after the apostles actually lived uh, among the apostles and carried the torch after they died. And he says this about these, uh, this authority. He said, the external testimony of tradition alone for the Protestant church cannot alone decide the apostolic origin and canonical character of a book. In other words, uh, this would be against the Roman Catholics who basically say, look, we just have to say it's authoritative and it's authoritative. We just have to declare uh, externally that we want this book in the Bible and that has to happen. Where what Shaykh is saying, though, it's not this external testimony. There has to be an internal one as well, which we as Protestants hold to. But it must be confirmed by the internal testimony of the book itself. But this is not wanting. In other words, we have this in our, in our canon. And the general voice of Christendom for these 18 years... I think I backed off. It must be confirmed by the internal testimony of the book itself, but this is not wanting. And the generational, genera- general voice of Christendom for these 1,800 years has recognized in that little volume, which we call the New Testament, a book altogether unique in spiritual power and influence over the minds and hearts of man, and of more interest and value than all the ancient and modern classics combined. If ever God spoke and still speaks to man, it is in this book. So what is Shaykh saying here? That, that there's that internal testimony in the New Testament that is obvious to all who read it with an open heart and open mind. Those who are empowered by the Spirit will recognize and see this authority. And I can't tell you as a new Christian reading this statement here. And I was reading books like you know, Tim LaHaye and these really kind of flowery Christian books that people gave me. And, and to read something like this I mean, it, it just sunk deep in my heart about how, how powerful the New Testament was and how brilliant and beautiful and unique it was. And it made me want to dig into it and study it all the more. And I, I've read through that whole series at least once, some volumes two or three times. And there's two, two quotes I remember, this one and one I'm going to read in a little bit. So a powerful testimony of this internal Testimony, the internal power and authority that the books of the New Testament possess, which those who canonized it recognize and use that as the grounds and reason for them doing it. Again, not some external testimony of the church, it's the Bible itself uh, and the influence it has in the spirit filled church. Now, in the second volume of, of, of that Shaykh has, it deals with the age directly after the apostles. 
And what he does here in, in starting this volume on the, the uh, apostolic fathers is he contrasts what the apostles did and what these men did. And he says there's this infathomable gap between the apostles and these men. And again, these men were influenced. These men were taught and discipled by the apostles. They knew Paul. They knew John. Uh, they, they knew Peter and ministered alongside them and under them. Yet, Shafe points out, as you're going to see, there, there's this major difference between these two groups of men, a noticeable uh, gap. He says this, we now descend from the primitive apostolic church. So we're leaving this apostolic air now into a different age. To the Greco-Roman, from the scene of creation to the work of preservation, from the fount of divine revelation to the stream of human development, from the inspiration of the apostles and prophets to the productions of enlightened but fallible teachers. The hand of God has drawn a bold line of demarcation between the century of miracles and the succeeding ages to show by the abrupt transition and the striking contrast the difference between the work of God and the work of man. And to impress us more deeply with the supernatural origin of Christianity and the incomparable value of the New Testament. There is no other transition in history so radical and sudden and yet so silent and secret. What a profound statement that God drew this line between these two groups of men. And if you've ever read the Apostolic Fathers, they are delightful men to read. They are, it's like reading, uh, listening to a, a new believer and just the, the, the bubbliness and the excitement of his faith. I, I've read through them uh, three or four times in my life, and I've loved every minute of it. But you notice a major, major difference between what these men did and what the apostles did, what they said and the way they said it, and what the apostles said in the way that they said it. And Shafe says that this is a, a line that God put between these men so that we wouldn't intermingle these ages. So we see a radical difference between the creation of the canon and the preservation of that canon, the creation of Christianity and its preservation. Now, that's the first qualification. Um, the second is who wrote the book? Very simply, who wrote the book? Who's the author of the book? Uh, if it was a, an apostle, then it was good. It pretty much would be part of the canon. Um, no questions asked. Uh, if it was somebody associated with an apostle, and we have a couple books like that in the New Testament, what books were not written by apostles, but men closely associated with apostles? There's three of them. Mark is one, Luke and Acts, exactly. Yeah, it's Luke is Acts, right. And who, who was Mark associated with? Peter. Peter. And Luke was associated with Paul. So all you really had to do was establish the fact that Paul and Luke were together and Mark and Peter were together, and that book was part of the canon. There's very little debate about the nature, the divine quality of them. Some people just said, eh, it wasn't an apostle, so let's throw it out, where the church very strongly defended. Now, we need to include this because an apostle oversaw this work and was a major part of the writing. And then there were books that, that, that had that authority, uh, that, that seemed to, to speak in, with that boldness and that confidence and that power, but they didn't have a name associated with them. Uh, what book would that be? Hebrews, exactly. Hebrews was debated for quite a while. It was loved. It was cherished. Uh, it's in many of the lists of the books that we have of the New Testament uh, before it was formalized. 
But there was always some reservation about including it in the canon, not because of the content, but because it had no author. Now, some people would say, well, it was Paul, but I don't think so. And the church has always doubted whether it was actually Paul, despite uh, what John Owen says. Um, uh, so we had those, those that had author that were, was apostle, those associated with them, and those that didn't have an author, but still had that, that inner testimony, that power and authority that they were looking for. Uh, and the third qualification was the early witness of the church. Not, not as powerful or, or as prominent as these other two, but it was still there. What, what the early church said, later generations was given a lot of weight. In fact, when you read the, the uh, arguments for or against books in the latter second and early third century. A lot of their debates are who said what about this book. So they took that at a, a very, uh, a, a lot of weight was on that. Uh, an example, uh, who would you consider, let's say somebody wanted to add a new book to the Bible, uh, who would you consider more worthy? What the early church said about it or what some you know, Harvard uh, Ivy League pinhead scholar said about it? <laughs> well, yeah, you take what the guy said about it in the first or second century. So, yeah, the, the early testimony of what the church said about that gave it a lot of weight. Now, the first uh, peer we want to examine, any questions about that before we move on? There's three pretty clear qualifications. The first one had far more weight uh, than any others. If, the fr if it didn't meet that first condition, it was done. It, it was out. Uh, the other three, the other two could be debated, uh, but it had to have that first one. Um, no questions? Okay, let's move on. Uh, the first period we want to examine is what we call the Apostolic Fathers. These men came after the Apostles. Uh, they were the very next generation after them, and many of them, like I said, knew the Apostles. Uh, their lives and ministries interacted. They overlapped. And not just, okay, the Apostles were here, and from X to Y, and these men were over here in that overlapping period. They were, they were together. These men worked together with each other. They knew each other. Um, now, it's important to understand something that, that often we miss when we look at canonicity. Uh, these men held two things to be of an equal importance when they considered the authority uh, that they had to preach and teach. First was the written word of scripture, and the second was, was there existed an oral tradition at the time that was also equal in these men's mind to what the scripture actually taught. Uh, to them, the life and teaching of the apostles existed in two forms, that which was written and that which had been spoken. Remember, we're only 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years after the apostles. There were men who, could, who were living who could testify. Yes, they actually said that. So these two things were sort of held together as efficacious and good for the church. And that seems kind of odd to us, doesn't it, that it would elevate the, the spoken word to that level. But in a world where literacy was not nearly what it is today, I believe the, when people say 95% of the people back then were illiterate, that's not right. A lot of people could read and did read, but writing was far more expensive and books were very expensive. Um, usually only rich people had books and the reason they had them was they could afford a scribe to copy books that they wanted. They had permanent scribes who lived with them and wrote for them. Um, so again, transmitting information uh, both geographically and generationally was normally done through the spoken word at that time. So verbal tradition was very common and very important, and often the information was passed around for months or even years before it was written down. What we have in the Gospels wasn't written 
by somebody as Christ spoke. It was most likely remembered, and then people got together, and Luke says he did this. He actually collected uh, sources and, and people and put this together from these uh, different sources. Um, so it was a way that information was normally uh, passed from generation to generation and uh, one place to another. Um, so any, anything that they said would be considered important, it would not just be remembered, but it would be cherished and passed on to other people. And, and there were different mechanisms uh, and, and checks and balances in the way that they memorized stuff, in the way that they promoted stuff that helped preserve this tradition. If you study, uh, there's a book by the name of, uh, by a guy named uh, Bachman, Richard Bachman, called uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And uh, you know, people kind of give the example of information being passed verbally to the uh, Norman Rockwell thing where you got one person on the phone and they're telling something to somebody and it goes through 50 different phones and the person at the other end is just kind of shocked by what she hears. That's sort of how uh, oral tradition is looked at and, and Bachman shows no it's not. These people when they had religious material there were checks and balances that made sure not just that the, the person uh, disseminating but the group receiving it would recognize when things were not right and even correct the man who was giving this information. So there are many checks and balances, especially in uh, small groups of people, to keep this information accurate and preserve it for generation after generation. Um, so again, this uh, oral tradition was there and it was on par with the actual written word. Now before you call me a Roman Catholic, um, this is not what Roman Catholics teach. Roman Catholics believe that uh, God actually preserved this oral tradition, and even today it bears the same weight as Scripture itself. What we're going to see is, no, this, when the word, when these generations passed, and this information couldn't be uh, articulated or couldn't be um, defended as easy as it was in the previous generations, they did away with it. It was forgotten, basically. Just the scripture became the only thing where the Roman Catholics believe that all these weird doctrines that they have about the assumption of Mary, of purgatory, uh, the robes and hats they wear, the, the strange pointy mitre hats, uh, all that rests on oral tradition that was given to the apostles and has been preserved to this day. That's not what we're saying. We're saying for a brief period of time, this oral tradition was on par with scripture and used alongside of scripture. And we'll see how it faded uh, with, with time. So we believe this oral tradition is important at one particular point in history. Um, that is the, the, this second generation after the apostles, but it faded as the can became more concrete and prominent. Um, any, any questions before we go on? Okay. Now, three important uh, things we're going to uh, ask about these men. Uh, first of all, what did they consider to be the scripture? What New Testament books did they possess? And uh, what did they think about these books? We're going to look at th uh, four men, uh, three kind of in a group and then one separately. The, the three are uh, Clement of Rome, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, Polycarp, and a, a very strange but interesting guy by the name of Papias of Heropolis. And we're going to, he's so unique, we're going to put him in a little category by himself and look at him uh, separately. First, Clement of Rome, he lived from 35 AD to 99 AD. What does that tell you? He was born five years after Christ was crucified. So this man as a teenager, you know, could have sat down with people who less than 20 years ago had seen Christ crucified. So his life definitely overlapped the life of the apostles. 
Uh, Ignatius uh, lived pretty much the same period, from 35 AD to 108 AD. So again, overlapping the life of the apostles and those who witnessed Christ. Uh, Polycarp, a little bit later, 69 AD to 155 AD, but still within that age of people living who could speak about what they heard Christ and the apostles say. Now, all these men, first of all, they considered the Old Testament to be the word of God. Uh, they did not speak Hebrew, so they used uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. What is that called? Exactly, Septuagint. Yes, Septuagint, specified by LXX in your books for 70. Um, when they quote the Old Testament, uh, they always refer to it as scriptures, and they introduce it with the typical formulas that were commonly used even in our day to specify something was scriptures. Uh, the scripture says, God says, the Holy Spirit says, it is written. All these formula uh, are used to introduce sacred scripture, and they use these profusely when referring to the Old Testament. Um, secondly, they have large swaths of New Testament writings. Uh, Clement had Hebrews, and he quoted it eight times, so people to say, well, Hebrews was kind of a later edition. It was used right up there in the beginning with the rest of the books, and he refers to it eight times. And remember, all we have in, of Clement is one book by him, a rather short book. It would be a very, very a thin novel if it was put into a, a book form. And yet in that little book, that little letter, uh, he quotes Hebrews eight times. Uh, he quotes from Matthew, Luke, Acts, 1 Corinthians, Romans, Titus, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, James, uh, 1 and 2 Peter, and there may even be an allusion to Revelation in there. Uh, so keep in mind as well that we only have, again, have one book that he wrote, and yet he has all these quotes. And, and some of these books, if you look at the time they were written, I mean, the ink's almost still wet on some of these books, yet he had them and used them as scripture. Um, Ignatius, uh, he quotes from Matthew, Luke, Acts, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, and Thessalonians. Uh, Polycarp, uh, he quoted from Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1st uh, and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st Peter, and 1st and 2nd John. So we have in these men about 80%, 90% of the New Testament represented in just their quoting of the Bible, of the New Testament. Again, I, I figure I have here is about 90% of the New Testament represented here. Well, the only things that really stand out and missing from these is what? John's Gospel, which was written so late that these men probably wouldn't have had it at that time. And then allusion to Revelation, but uh, Revelation is not directly quoted by these men. And uh, now what they thought about the Old Testament is interesting in that they did not... Um, or the way they thought about the New Testament was that they did not introduce it as they did the Old. It was never uh, referred to the same way as the Old Testament. It was never said to be uh, scriptures. Uh, they spoke of the works as being inspired. Uh, Clement wrote to the Corinthian church. Uh, it was going through very much the same uh, problems that they were going through in Paul's day. And he says this of Paul's letters. Take up the epistle of the blessed apostle Paul. What did he write to you at the time when this gospel first began to be preached? Truly, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote to you. So he may not have called it scripture directly like they did the Old Testament, but he says it, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. What, what greater uh, pedestal can you put something on, a writing on, than say it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And another interesting thing is when these men quoted uh, the Old Testament, it, it was literally word for word. Uh, a lot of writers, even the New Testament writers, will paraphrase. Uh, it's like they'll, they'll almost leave words out at times. 
These men, it's as if they had their Bible opened and wrote word for word what that section said. So they were exact and precise in their using of the, uh, the Old Testament or the Septuagint. So they may not have used the name or the same formulaic language when referring to the New Testament as they did the Old, but they still consider it to be inspired. Polycarp calls the book of Ephesians, he says this, for I trust that you are well-versed in the sacred scriptures and that nothing is hidden from you. So Polycarp calls them the sacred scriptures. Um, And they still, even though they may not have elevated them to the level of the Old Testament when they quoted it, uh, they still used it as something that was to be obeyed and followed. It had authority that they were to listen to. Clement says this, uh, an interesting phrase, uh, this is kind of leaving the subject going more to the oral tradition. he says this, again, remember how precise they were in quoting the Old Testament and, and pretty much the New as well. Uh, he says this, remember the words of Jesus, but when he, he quotes these words, uh, you look at the words and you say, well, well, Jesus never said that. In fact, I had a quote to show you, but I never got the, never got the email to the right person. Um, it looks like something Jesus would say. It doesn't contradict anything he would say. But it's not what he said. There's no reference to this in any of the Gospels that we have, nothing even close to it. And um, so the question is, where did he get this from? And what most scholars think is that he was referring to an oral tradition, something maybe somebody was sitting down at a sermon. You know, Jesus preached probably thousands of sermons in his three years that he preached. He did it all day. And he may not have said everything the same exact way, a little bit of variance. And so somebody may have heard this and remembered it. It's a very eloquent thing that he said. It's very memorable. And just passed that on to somebody else. And then they remembered it. And they remembered it. So uh, not in the scripture, but still it was considered to be authoritative. It was still considered to be the words of Jesus. Remember the words of Jesus. Um, yeah, something Jesus actually did say but was not recorded in the scriptures. Now, when I introduced quotes in this way, uh, it was as if it was still part of the, the collective memory of the church. The church still had this memory, this recognition, this knowledge of things that Christ said that were just passed from one person to the next that weren't necessarily written down in the scriptures. Um, now, now, think of the weight of something that this would have. We often think, it well, it really doesn't matter that much, but, but it meant a lot to the first century church. Uh, and, and to these men who minister, the people these men ministered to. And look at the illustration. Um, let's take Paul. Paul visited Corinthian uh, Corinth in about uh, 51 to 52 AD, I believe. And let's say, while well, he was there for a year, so he taught a lot. He probably preached a lot of sermons. And let's say there, there was a man there, uh, Bob was his name, young teenager, was really struggling with something. And uh, he heard Paul preach a sermon that just helped him so much, got him through the, this rut that he was in. And he always remembered that and appreciated those words that Paul said. And then you know, 30 years later, um, let's say 80 AD, uh, this man, Bob, is now a pastor, Pastor Bob. And he's walking by the, the, the pew one day and he sees this teenager, Timothy. And Timothy just seems to be downcast and really, really depressed. And uh, so Pastor Bob goes up like a good pastor and asks him, Tim, what's wrong? And so Timothy tells him this problem that he's having and it's getting him depressed. And so Pastor Bob says, well, let me tell you something, Timothy. Now, he could have opened up his Bible and and quoted something from it, you know, Proverbs or Psalms, something to get this this man out of his slough. But he says, you know, Paul was here way back when I was about your age. 
And uh, I was feeling pretty much like you do. And Paul got up and he preached a sermon. And this is what he said. And now those words are nowhere in the New Testament. You think those words would have still had some authority and some meaning to that kid listening, there, sitting there? This is Paul. He was here. He was right there. And he preached these words. And it helped Pastor Bob. And it helps me. That had a great deal of meaning to that young man. Let's go another 30 years. Let's say now uh, Timothy's an elder. And it's what, about maybe 120, 110 AD? And uh, Timothy walks by and he sees a, a young man in his teens named Frank sitting there all depressed and despondent. And so he starts the conversation that Pastor Bob had with him 30 years earlier. And he says, well, you've heard us talk about Pastor Bob, right? Well, well let me tell you something Pastor Bob said to me. And he relays that information about what Paul said to this young man, Frank. You still think it would have had meaning? I, I think so. So that's how these words were to these people. Uh, it may have been something that somebody remembered Jesus said that may have been Mark Luke didn't remember. It could have been uh, something from a sermon Paul gave that was never written down, but it still had a great deal of authority and a great deal of meaning and importance to the church. Uh, any questions before we move on to look at Pappy's? Yes? Are there any books that were quoted from that didn't make it into the canon that would have been something that we're going to look at that, something close to that with, with Papias. Yeah, there, there are no books that have, that I know of that have Christ's quotes in them, that anybody has, gives any authority or any chance that it actually was Christ. It, it seemed to all be, and we'll see a, an example of that being attempted with, with Papias, who we're going to look at right now. Papias of the Parapets, very, very interesting character. Um, How do you spell his name? P-A-P-I-A-S. Heropolis, H-I-E-R, I believe. Let's see if I can write it down. Um, H-I-E-R-A-P-O-L-I-S is where it was from. Uh, now, uh, Papias lived between, was born in 70 AD and, and died in 163. So a very long life. A life, again, that overlapped much of what the apostles' uh, apostles' lives. Um, he lived in a place called Heropolis. And it's important where he lived because this was a trading center uh, east of Israel. And if you're in the Middle East and you wanted to go east, which a lot of people did, not many people went west unless you had a boat, uh, the travel routes went east, uh, you went through the city of Heropolis. And um, the, uh, during that time, there were no Hiltons, there were no Motel 8s. Uh, if you stayed anywhere, you stayed in a, an inn, which were very nasty, vile, immoral places. You know, think of the uh, Tenardiers uh, and Le Miserat. That's pretty much what the inns were like at that time, um, stuffing cats into the... Uh, sausages and stuff. But um, so if you're a Christian, you sought another um, Christian to stay with, to lodge with, and, and they showed a great deal of hospitality. Well, since Papias was the bishop, these people would normally come to him. They wouldn't just wander around the city looking for Christians. They would go to the bishop. And when he sat down with them, he had a process. His goal in life was to collect as many sayings about Christ as he could get. That's what he wanted in life. That was his whole purpose, and to put it into a book. So he would interview people. No, I just want a place to stay. But he got a whole series of questions about whether you knew any of the uh, Lord's apostles or whether you heard anything about what the elders were teaching. And he took these and collected them into a, a very famous book. Um, let me see, I think what it's called here. It's called The Sayings of the Lord. Now, um, the problem is that this book is gone. It disappeared. 
but it was so popular that it was quoted by so many people that we have large chunks of it in existence. And if, if you ask a scholar at this time uh, if they would like to see a, a, a writing blow up in the desert across the, to their doorstep, it would be this book right here, this and a book called The uh, Hexapla by uh, Origen. Uh, just two books that scholars would love to get their hands on. Uh, the Lord found reason to simply take these books away, even though they were immensely popular at the time. Um, again, he was popular, and much of what he said was quoted by other writers. So we have an idea of what he said. In fact, the whole introduction to his book was preserved for us by the famous church historian Eusebius. And uh, he says this. Again, I wish I had this on a quote here, because I don't like reading big quotes like this without you seeing it. He says this, I shall not hesitate to put into order in form view, that's writing, along with the interpretation, everything I have learned carefully in the past from the elders and noted down carefully the truth which I vouch for, unlike most people, I took no pleasure in those who had many different stories, but only those who taught the truth, nor did I take pleasure in those who reported their memory of someone else's commandment, but only those who reported their memory of the commandments given by the Lord. Now, what he's saying here is that when I interviewed these people for this information, there are some rules that I follow. Okay. Uh, one of them was, I don't care about the memory of anybody else. Don't come and say, well, uh, my friend Bob told me that his friend Frank said this. Didn't want to hear that. If you heard it, I'll take it from your memory, but I'm not going to take it from your memory of somebody else's memory. So it had to be you who sat there and heard these things. Then I'll take them and consider them. Uh, the stories, he had some way of discerning whether something was a story. Maybe he compared it to what he already heard. If it contradicted it, he didn't uh, care for it. But he was very, very selective in how he chose these writings um, and, and these stories, uh, the, these accounts. Uh, it says this, um, and proceeding from the truth itself, and if by chance any one of them had been in attendance to the elders when they arrived, I made inquiries of the words of the elders as Andrew or Peter or Philip or Thomas or James or John or Matthew or any of the Lord's disciples. So you get the impression here that these men are still alive. And when somebody comes into the city that's a Christian, he wants to know if they've heard anything about them. Have they said anything? Has Andrew said anything? Have any of the disciples living said anything that you can tell me that I can add to my book? Again, if you heard it, I'll accept it, but not you hearing somebody else hearing about it. Um, and any other of the Lord's disciples, or whatever Ariston, who nobody knows who he is, or John the Elder, who probably is a reference to, to Apostle John, or his disciples were saying, for I did not think information from the book would profit me as much as information from a living and surviving voice. He says, I don't want stuff from a book. I want a living and surviving voice. That's what I'm after. And his goal was to get as many of these things that he could and preserve them for the future church. Now, the Lord saw fit to destroy it for some reason. And from what I've read, he did have a lot of really weird things in there uh, that shouldn't have been there. So I'm not sure how accurate his uh, methods were, but he had this idea of let's get these writings, these sayings, and, and put them down so that other people can benefit from them. That was his goal. 
Again, the phrase living and surviving voice. This was not some useless hobby that Papias was engaged in, like stamp collecting. Uh, These were legitimate, edifying, important voices from the past uh, that spoke to them that very day. And we know about the popularity and respect given to Papias, uh, not only in his day, but in generations after him, uh, that this was not some strange, fringe, heretical view. That he was deeply respected and valued for what he did. Um, Again, what did he desire? Not information from books, uh, but from words from the living, surviving voices. He not only gathers writings, uh, but various interpretations of them as well. He seeks not only storytellers for its information, but those people uh, who love the truth and teach the truth. He did not seek secondhand reports again, nor do I take pleasure in those who reported their memory of someone else's commandment, but only those who reported their memory of the commandment of the Lord himself. He also wanted to know what the elders, the apostles were saying, who appeared to be living at the time. Now, Pappies had a lot of people to choose from. Um, Again, as I said, uh, Heropolis was on the way uh, to the east from the, uh, the Mediterranean. And uh, it is said that when Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, a number of the Christians fled. They went and settled in Heropolis. So a lot of people that were carrying these memories uh, went and settled there. It was probably the closest place to go. And since there was a a trading city, there was probably a lot of work there uh, for people. So it was a very, very popular, very popular city. Uh, It said that Philip's two daughters, uh, the prophetesses mentioned in Acts, settled there permanently, lived there permanently. So he was in a unique situation. He probably was born there, so he knew the city very well. People knew him very well. Uh, A very unique place where he could gather large amounts of information on this subject. Now, what I'm saying here is that the church did not ignore the scriptures, nor did they play them down. They simply believed that there was another source of information that they were blessed with that could also be used alongside of the scriptures. Again, this living and surviving voice. Any questions about this? Okay, let me give one more illustration, kind of lengthy illustration, just just to show how important this this is if we kind of think outside of our box. Um, Let's take the Civil War. Uh, Let's say you're a, a Civil War buff. You love the Civil War. In particular, uh, you love the Battle of Gettysburg. And let's say it's 1930, uh, and, and you have a collection of books on Gettysburg that is second to none. You, you have uh, uh, field reports that were written by uh, colonels and generals and, and captains when the grime and smell of battle was still in their bodies. They, they wrote to their commanding officers to tell them what happened. The, the ringing and the smell was still upon them. Uh, you, you have uh, Biographies were written by men who fought at that time. Uh, you have the largest collection of diaries. Much of what we get about the Civil War was written in diaries. Men would fight for the day, they'd come back to the campfire, and, and with their hands still trembling from the fear of battle, they, they would write describing to their wives events that happened. Some men would, would be mortally wounded on the field and crawl into some shade and pull out their diaries and write of their last experience in the battlefield. We have tons of these diaries, and this man has a massive collection of these things. And he just immerses himself all day in this material, uh, just loves it. And let's say he's in his study one day, as a little kid always comes into his study and asks about the books and asks what he's reading and stuff. And one day this this kid comes in and says, "Uh, Mr. So-and-so, my grandfather's visiting, and and my grandfather fought in the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, what do you think this guy's going to do? Well, I've got all these books. what, What can an old man tell me about a battle that I don't already have here? Is that going to be his attitude? Of course not. He's going to 
beg this man to come. He's going to give him a feast, get this man a drink and get him talking, open up his mouth so he can just start talking about all that he went through. That, that's valuable information to him. And you think, well, 1930, that, that, that's a lot, but that's only 50 years after the battle. And uh, there are a lot of men living at that time who fought in these battles. Um, let's say you go to the 1950s, and this same man is sitting there in his study. And a, um, a child comes up and says, you know, my father is very old. Not a father, let's say a young man in his 30s says, my father, uh, his father fought in Gettysburg. And my father, grandfather's dead, but my father's here in town. Would you like to talk to him? Well, would that be good? I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd sit down, did your father ever tell you anything? What did your father say about the war? Any information that he passed on? Because people would, would sit down and talk about these. I had a friend whose father fought in World War II. Uh, the major battles like, like Iwo Jima and Okinawa, just horrible battles. And he used to tell stories, and, and we loved those stories. They were gross and nasty, but we loved those stories. And he would sit for hours and tell us about all this nasty stuff that he went through, and things he had to do. And uh, that's this, a lot of information passed down that way. So yeah, he'd certainly want to sit with his father and talk about his father. Or let's say it's the 1970s, 1980s, and an old man comes in and says, yeah, you know, you got all these books about Gettysburg. You know, my grandfather fought in Gettysburg. And you say, well, you know, tell me about it. You'd certainly want to sit down with that man and see if he told his grandson any stories about Gettysburg. And you think, well, that, that's a long time, but my, my grandmother was born in 1919, and she died about five years ago. So she could have known people in her teens and 20s who fought at Gettysburg, who could have told her stories. Um, and, and if you think about it, the, you know when the last Civil War veteran died? 1955. William Williams, the honorary general. General Williams was a Texan. 1950. In the 2010s, there were two Confederate widows who were living in the 2010s, I think one died four or five years ago, who were still collecting a pension from the Confederacy for their husbands who fought in the Civil War. And what happened was a lot of these um, African-American men would um, marry later in life very young women, just you know, kind of take care of them. It wasn't a sexual thing, just would care for them and there were more benefits if they were married. Uh, some of those women lived until the 2000s. So you're not that far. There's fun, kind of funny pictures of uh, Roosevelt had a, a big parade in 1930, uh, 30s to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the uh, end of the Civil War. And you see pictures of these old men, you know, bull-legged, walking down the street with these big white beards dressed in their Confederate Union uniforms. And there were hundreds of them walking down the streets in 1930 that were that actually fought. So we're not talking about something that far back where the living memory would still be there. And that's the, sort of the age that we're dealing with right now with these, uh, not just the apostles but and their their successors, but those who went after them. So you can see how if you're interested in the scriptures, if you're interested in the Lord and his apostles, this would have meant a great deal to you. Any questions before we move on? Okay. Um, one more thing. Remember that there was a character, I cannot remember his name, uh, in the, uh, the book To Kill a Mockingbird, not the movie, but the book. Uh, and he was famous throughout all of Macon County. Remember what he was famous for? Wish I could remember his name. He was the last surviving Confederate war veteran in Macon County. And I think uh, it was written in the 1930s. It took place to kill a mockingbird. So yeah, the 30s and 40s, a lot of these men were still alive. Um, now, 
what is it that caused this memory to fade? What is it that made it disappear? Um, first of all, uh, they were either forgotten or became less reliable. As time went on, uh, despite the greatest efforts of men like Papias, uh, they just became more, uh, less and less accurate. Uh, Herman Ritterboss, a famous Dutch theologian, says this, that such would be the case is evident from the very nature of the matter. It is simply a natural development with the passing of time, the church spreading over the whole world. The apostles could only keep written contact with the churches and with the dead of the apostles, dead of death of the apostles. The oral tradition diminished in certainty because less trustworthy, so that the written fixation of the apostles naturally acquired more significance. I kind of botched that reading, but what he's saying is, as time passed, uh, that, that spoken word became less and less reliable. So it, it just faded away, and the scriptures superseded it. Um, a disciple of Polycarp, I believe it was, I didn't write it down, um, Irenaeus, I think, or Ignatius. Yeah, Irenaeus. Uh, he used to listen to Polycarp uh, just go on and on and on about all the words that, that the Apostle John had told him. He was a disciple of John, very close to the, the Apostle John. And he, he uh, reminisced about all the things that Polycarp would say. And yet he just treats them like they're kind of interesting memories. They're not really, yeah, it's nice, it was cool, but that, that's it. It doesn't go beyond it. He doesn't try to preserve them or doesn't uh, try to reproduce them. Just, yeah, this is what he did. It's just an interesting fact about this man. Uh, so again, they're losing their significance even when they could be reproduced. Um, yeah, it just simply shows their passing. It appears to be passing just something they did, uh, did, did that way that we don't do now. Uh, another historical circumstance has caused the church to circle the wagons around the canon. So th there's one more thing that, that really solidified the canon over this written word. Anybody know what that is? What made the church really cling to the canon? Close, yeah, yeah, but not. Pardon? Heresy, exactly. Now, when we think of the first heresies in the early church, what do you think of? You think of Arianism, right? The Trinitarian battles over the nature of Christ, the nature of God, hypostatic union. But that really wasn't the case. Before uh, these men could fight the Arians, they had to have something. And what was that? A Bible. They had to have a canon that they could use against Arius and his followers. And when Satan attacked the church, the first thing he attacked was the canon. The first heresies that came out of the church were heresies that centered around the scripture, the nature of scripture, what was the actual canon. Um, and there were three of them uh, that were prominent in the first, year, uh, first few centuries of the church. Um, again, after the living memory had faded, Satan immediately began to attack of the nature of the scriptures and has forced the church to carefully define what the scriptures were and, and what the canon was. Now, the first of these uh, was Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism believed that the, uh, there was a time period between when Christ rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven, that 40 days, the Gnostics believed that during that time, Christ taught them uh, certain truths uh, and they put that into writing, into Gospels, and they brought these Gospels to the church and said, these are the true Gospels. Those ones you have written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, th those are old, but those are no good. Christ taught us the real truth during his 40 days, and these are the books that you need to follow. So the, these first battles were fought against these Gnostics trying to show that, no, your books are spurious, your books are not to be trusted. These books that we have, these four Gospels, are the books that God left us. So there was this 
big battle about what the nature, what scriptures actually were considered to be um, inspired. Uh, Irenaeus was a man who fought against this. He was a, a disciple of Polycarp. He said this, uh, you will often hear these new, of these new gospels uh, that were discovered that the church rejected and how we need to consider these gospels at, and leg as legitimate and ask, why did the church reject them? These gospels were drained up by these Gnostics and were rightly rejected by the church because of uh, the nonsense that they possessed. I'm actually quoting that as uh, Irenaeus, that, that was uh, something else some, some, somebody else said. So anyway, they, they basically um, called these thing, things spurious. They said that it's a secret knowledge that Christ just didn't do that, basically. So that they really... Um, uh, this is a quote by Arrhenius I had right here. The scriptures, they are the pillar and ground of truth, for it is unlawful to assert that they preached before they possessed perfect knowledge, as some do venture even to say, boasting themselves as improvers of the apostles. So these were, were secret teachings that these Gnostics had that only were revealed to them, that they now are going to reveal to you. Uh, and Arrhenius says that, that's just nonsense. Uh, the scriptures that we have, these are the pillar and the ground of truth. Uh, again, this is taking a shot at the Gnostics, uh, that they did not receive this information, that it was spurious, it, it was wrong, it was an error. Um, this perfect knowledge is not necessary. We have all the knowledge we need because we received it directly from the apostles. Um, now, what Gnosticism did was it forced the church to solidify what the true faith was and begin to formulate what the true canon was. They began to specify an orthodoxy as well as the true source of that orthodoxy. You often hear uh, there'll be stuff on the news where you know they, they discover this new gospel, the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Barnabas and this scholar will come out and wave it around and say, yeah, see, this is one that the New Testament church didn't like so they, they threw it away. Uh, these, these bigoted men you know, didn't like this, so they, they disregarded it. And what those are are these Gnostic Gospels. And they're, they're just garbage. There's nothing worthy in them at all. All this weird magic and, and talking animals, this weird fables and things like that. Uh, the next one was, any questions about Gnosticism? Okay. I need to move on here. Uh, Marcion uh, is another uh, teaching that the ch early church had to battle. Uh, Marcion basically rejected God of the Old Testament. Uh, he considered the Old Testament spurious. It was completely rejected. Uh, he regarded the New Testament as uh, being misunderstood. Uh, what did the apostles do? Where did they get the idea of the Messiah from? Well, from the Old Testament, right? That's where it came from. So obviously if the Old Testament is wrong, then this idea of Jesus being the Messiah is wrong because the idea comes from the New Testament. So he rejected the idea of Jesus. Uh, he looked at the New Testament as most of it was spurious. The only thing he really accepted was the Gospel of Luke. And he had to cut three chapters out of Luke because the, the, all the infant narratives center around uh, Scripture. Um, all of Paul's writings were rejected. Galatians was redacted, had to get rid of all that nasty stuff about Abraham and stuff. So he basically threw away most of the New Testament and all of the Old Testament. Um, now, the man who took Marcion on to task was one of my favorite uh, church people, uh, a guy by the name of Tertullian. Anybody hear of Tertullian before? Yeah, really, probably the first really uh, great Christian theologian. Most of these men we've mentioned were great men, but they were great pastors. Uh, Tertullian was a towering intellect, a brilliant man. And um, again, the first real church theologian. He lived from, his writings are from 196 to 212 AD. And uh, there's a lot of firsts for Tertullian too. You know what he was the first one to do? Three things. Two, most people know one, it's just my personal favorite. One, he's the first person to use the word Trinity. 
Nobody used it until Tertullian. Secondly, he was the first person, and this is in response to uh, uh, Marcion's teachings, first person to take the books of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, put it in one volume, and call it the New Testament and Old Testament. Until then, the Old Testament was in a different collections. You had the Gospels, you had Paul's writings, you had the general epistles, and yet you, you buy a collection of them. And he said, well, let's take it, put it all in the one book, and call it the New Testament and the Old Testament. That's how we got the New Testament and Old Testament, was for telling. Now, the, the third one is my personal favorite. Any uh, infant Baptist here, Pedal Baptist? Okay. You know that... Uh, Tertullian was the first person in church history to mention infant baptism. And now, as a, a, a believer's Baptist, a creedal Baptist, that really inspires me because he was against it. So the first person ever to mention infant baptism in the Bible was, or outside of the Bible, was against it. A great, great man. So anyway, he, he battled this. Uh, he was the main, yes? How do you spell his name? Uh, T-E-R-T-U-L-L-I-A-N. T-U-R-T-U-L-L-I-A-N. And he actually wrote a book, the first book on baptism, called On Baptism. And he gives theological reasons. His, his argument is, look, that infants aren't sinning, so why baptize them? Baptism obviously forgives a person's sin. It wipes away their sins. So why would you baptize an infant? If they die, they're going to go to heaven anyway. So infant baptism didn't come around really to the idea of original sin came around. Babies just went to heaven because they didn't sin. So a, a theological reason he gives, not a personal one. Um, and he gathered all the writings into a single collection. Uh, the books that he included there in that writing were the four Gospels, Acts, all of Paul's writings, First uh, Peter, First uh, John, Jude, actually had Revelation. Uh, he was aware of the book of Hebrews and appreciated it, uh, used it, but just a little bit a queasy about putting it into canon because it didn't have an author to it. Still liked it, appreciated it, had that authority, but a little bit queasy about adding it into this new volume. Um, so here we have most of the books of the canon bound into one book called the New Testament. And that was done because of Marcion. They, they also they, they defended it as well. Um, they had this more of an internal defense where they had to defend what it said, what the Bible said was actually legitimate. Final one, I need to hurry here, I'm really going quick, What was monasticism. And it went from about 156 to 170 AD. Uh, these were people that were, were uh, pretty much charismatics. Uh, they were going to trances, uh, they'd utter these prophecies, they would faint, uh, they were apocalyptic, they believed Christ was coming any minute, they had a city set up for his coming, uh, they were ascetic, they uh, criticized the institutional church, so a, a, a pretty much a, 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 an old-time charismatic. Uh, and these utterances they had, they collected them. So a person would have a, go into a trance and eyes would roll back of their head and start shaking and, and uttering these words and they would write those words down. And those words, no matter how ridiculous they were, were considered to be scripture. And this, I mean, went through the church like wildfire. And uh, the church had to battle this. Now, um, so anyway, just to, to cut through a lot of what I, what I have here, what they basically did, what the, what the first way they tried to fight it was interesting. They tried to fight it with exorcisms. Let's just cast the demons out of these people. Let's get rid of the demon and they'll be back normal and won't be you know, trying to add to scripture like this. Because what they spoke, they believed was actually on par with scripture. And they realized that wasn't working, but they realized they had another uh, weapon to use against these people. And that was a specific doctrine. What would that doctrine be? 
the sufficiency of Scripture? Why do we need these babbling people adding to the Bible? Isn't the Bible sufficient enough? So that was what they used to fight these people, was the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, they believed it at the time, but now that they took it out and they honed it and they sharpened it and they became skilled at using it and used it to battle these heretics. So, this was eventually done away with. The bad thing about the... Um, Montanus was that Tertullian became one, one of the, the tragedies of church history. He actually fell in with these, with these people, um, very sadly, but uh, he did. Um, now, what's often said about these men who, who formed the canon was that they did it uh, to protect uh, and institutionalize their power through the choosing of the canon. They went out and they had this power and this authority, and they wanted to preserve it. So they picked a bunch of books that were going to basically promote what they believed. Uh, they, 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 the cis-normative, patriarch, patriarchal, misogynist, capitalist, bourgeois uh, men wanted to keep the homoerotic, the feminist, the transgender people out of the church so that they, they used these scriptures to protect themselves and protect their authority and power. Uh, that's sort of the Marxist interpretation and many, many people hold that. And, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, these men saw what was happening in their day uh, as poisonous to the church. They believed that they were in trusted uh, with care for the church, with a love for the church. They were shepherds, they were guardians, they were watchmen on the wall, and they saw these ideas as not threatening their own power, but threatening the church that Christ purchased with his own blood. So these men were, were non-stoppable. They were powerful. Uh, they were brilliant. They were courageous in the way that they defended the scripture and began forming this canon. They saw this as an attack, an attack on the scripture, as an attack on the church, and thus an attack on Christ. So they fought with all of their might against these uh, teachings. Uh, the teachings of Gnosticism, Martianism, Monotonism uh, were not just movements that affected the fringe doctrines of the church. Uh, they would have destroyed the church, and these men fought to the very end for the formation of the canon. In doing this, uh, they develop and clarify many of the doctrines that the next generation would use uh, to fully solidify the canon that we have today. The men who actually formed the canon, uh, completed it, were men who were standing on the shoulders, the theological shoulders of the men that we just looked at. They took the authority of Scripture and honed it and sharpened it, uh, clarified it. They took the uh, clarity of Scripture. Why do we need Gnostics coming in and explaining this secret doctrine? We have a, a clear, understandable Scripture already. That uh, They took the uh, sufficiency of Scripture. Why do we need these, these babbling nuts adding to the Bible? The Scripture is sufficient for everything that we need. And they use this, this sort of three-pronged attack uh, to defend the church and to defend the Scripture and remember, they, they agreed on between 25 and 22 and 25 of the 27 New Testament books. There wasn't like a big gap. There, there was maybe four or five books that they debated. And even the books they debated, they mostly appreciated. They had two categories for books. Uh, there were those that were profitable and those that were efficacious. The profitable ones were ones like Hebrews that they weren't sure about. The efficacious ones were ones that were definitely to be used in the church, part of the canon. So even the books they disagreed about, they still liked those books. They still read those books and used them. They just didn't think they fit in the category of efficacious. 
what, the, what this generation did was to enforce and develop certain theological ideas uh, that the next generation used to solidify and complete the actual canon. The idea of authority, sufficiency, and clarity of scripture but were those that went forward to form the book that we have. And just to close, I want, I want to read with uh, Shafe's quote again. I, I just love this quote. Just to kind of give us a, a mental picture of, of the power of the New Testament. Again, the external testimony of tradition alone for the Protestant Christian cannot alone decide the apostle's origin and canonical character of a book. It must be confirmed by the internal testimony of the book itself. But this is not wanting, in other words, it's not absent, it, it's there. The, and a general voice of Christendom for these 1,800 years has recognized in the little volume that we call the New Testament a book altogether unique in spiritual power and influence over the mind and heart of men and of more interest and value than all the ancient and modern classics combined. If God ever spoke and still speaks, it is in this book. And that's what these men went by. And that's why we have a scripture that we can look to and say, this is our God's word to us. So any, uh, I think we've got like five minutes, Justin said, before we're after. Any questions or comments? I know um, going forward to the 1500s, Martin Luther questioned whether James should be in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Was there any of the church fathers that questioned? James is in almost all the lists. So I don't know of anybody really questioning James. They may not have had it. There's two reasons that the books weren't in the lists that they gave. One, they just didn't have the book. These books weren't, um, not everybody had them, they're hard to get. And secondly, they just didn't think it was canon. So I, I don't know of anybody saying James, especially for Luther's reason. I mean, Luther was just crazy. Um, but they may not have had it, but I don't know of anybody actively arguing against James. I mean, he was Jesus' brother. So, I mean, that, that's about as close as you can get. That's even more than the Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul was an apostle. But uh, James was an apostle and a brother, so yeah, they carried a lot. And, and James's book is uh, is very, very much like the Sermon on the Mount. Some people say it's actually a commentary on a Sermon on the Mount. So uh, it spoke; it was very familiar the language uh, because. A, pardon? I didn't know that. Yeah, if you study commentaries on James, they'll, they'll show how much it really relates to the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, which would make sense if he was Christ's brother. So yeah, yeah, Luther was just nuts. He was wrong. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a hard. <laughs> that's when we had to leave. A lot of stuff we had to leave. Apocrypha was one of them. I, I can give a brief uh, overview. Uh, some of the books that they debated about whether they should be part of the scripture became the Apocrypha. Uh, it's got a very, very detailed history, but uh, it, it was just kind of passed around as a, a category of the. Um, the profitable books. They weren't inspired. They're often in uh, volumes of, uh, I believe, in fact, even the Septuagint had an apocrypha in it that they didn't really consider scripture. Uh, I believe, I can't remember, I think it was, in, it was actually in Jerome's uh, Vulgate translation, which is how it got into the Latin church. And then from the Latin church, it got into the English church because they basically, uh, in order for the um, it actually, it was in the, the original King James had the Apocrypha. And that was because the King James, believe it or not, is a, a major um, kind of giveaway to the Catholics. James was sort of a, a peacemaker, and he wanted to please the Catholics and the Protestants. So he included the Apocrypha to please the Catholics so they would accept this, this authorized version. So, um, 
But yeah, it's got, it's got a long history, but it goes way back. I mean, it's not something that popped up in the Reformation. It goes way back. And it wasn't really considered scripture until the Roman Catholic Church made it scripture in the Council of Trent. See, the, the, see, that's Roman Catholic Church. They, they believe you're never going to find Protestants saying, hey, let, let's, let's take some more books and add them to the canon. That, that, that's like anathema to us. That goes like the fingers on a, on a uh, chalkboard. But the Roman Catholic Church in the Council of Trent said, yeah, let's, let's take these deuterocanonical, they call them, second canon books, and add them to the New Testament, or actually make them separate. So they got three now. Old Testament, New Testament, and the Apocrypha. So, but yeah, and the the again, it's got an interesting issue. Like I said, even the um, you'll, you'll hear people quote it, like like Bunyan uh, will just kind of quote the Apocrypha, like it's scripture. Just, oh yeah, remember this? So it was part of their uh, their reading, part of their memory, part of their encouragement, but they never considered it part of scripture. Never. Anything else? Okay, well, thanks for your attention. I hope you'll at least think about taking that book by Kruger on your desert island. So anyway, thanks for your attention. I appreciate it. Let's have a word of prayer before we go. Our Father, we thank you for the, the, the joy you gave us in your scripture, not just reading it, but even understanding uh, how it was formed, how it was collected in, in the lives of the great men who, who were very much like us, Father, loved you and loved your word, how they uh, went about collecting it and defending it and uh, putting it into the book that we have here today. You know, all under your power and under your authority, uh, these fallible men gave us the Bible that we have today. And we thank you for it. And we thank you for uh, preserving the memory and the lives of these men for us so, so we can see how it was done and appreciate it. Uh, we thank you for these things, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.